Once we've made significant strides by working in close cooperation with our partners, we've not only doubled the supply of take-home naloxone kits from 3,000 to 7,000, but we've also made naloxone more uh, accessible to Albertans, and we've done this by authorizing emergency medical technicians and emergency medical responders to administer naloxone, and registered nurses and registered psychiatric nurses to prescribe it. We've also recently made take-home naloxone kits available to Albertans free of charge from pharmacies. At the very beginning, there were over 200 that signed up, and more have signed up over the last month. And we've also recently, um, uh, oh yeah, that's a piece around pharmacies. So following the recent decision by Health Canada, which I think uh, we saw some uh, hints at yesterday, we're now preparing to make naloxone available without a prescription. So that, of course, is going to be uh, very big and have a positive impact, I think, to a lot of individuals. And this is a change our government has been advocating for for many months, and we're very pleased to see that that's moving forward. Um, we'll finalize the required changes to provincial regulations, and we'll continue to work with our partners to prefer, prepare for a public launch of this new initiative uh, very soon in the spring. So we've also focused on making sure people have access to the right treatment options, as was mentioned in their communities, and my department's working with AHS on a plan to improve access to opioid dependency treatments, as you've heard, uh, methadone and suboxone. Following recommendations from Alberta's Mental Health Review, we're also taking steps to expand access to addiction treatment across the province. So there are going to be 18 treatment spaces in the new Medicine Hat Treatment Centre that will start receiving clients this month. We've also been moving forward with three new social detox beds for children and youth in Calgary, and I believe that was up from six to nine beds in Calgary, so that's a big improvement and 20 beds that will be upgraded to provide medical detox in Red Deer as opposed to just a social isolation detox. And we're also going to be uh, bringing on either six or eight, it depends on where we're able to find the space right here in Lethbridge for adult detox beds, and those will be medically supported as well. So uh, lots of evidence going into those decisions. And these new treatment spaces are helping to meet our promise to strengthen addictions care for Albertans. And we will use a direction from the Mental Health Review to continue guiding our actions going forward, including an opioid reduction strategy in partnership with our First Nations and, um, and other Indigenous leaders across Alberta. Strong families and communities are one of the most important uh, factors when it comes to addiction prevention. So today I want to encourage all of you to continue to promote healthy discussions in your community and at home, because education and awareness are absolutely essential to reducing the harms related to fentanyl and other opioid use. And I also want you to know that we have a strong partner in the Alberta government and Alberta Health Services. We will continue to work with communities and partners to prevent substance use and addictions, promote positive mental health, and provide the right treatment options for Albertans who need them. So thank you very much for the invitation and for the interest in such an important discussion today. And, uh, you're enjoying dessert right now. Uh, I just wanted to mention the topic for next week. It is called Interventions to Change Practice in Long-Term Care Facilities. What works, for whom, in what circumstance and why. It will be presented by Dr. Sienna Kaspar. And uh, just a reminder that all upcoming sessions for SACPA are, are listed on the, our website, sacpa.ca. And there is a suggestion box um, just outside if you have any ideas or comments for us. Uh, so we're going to start the question period uh, for today. And again, our topic was, is fentanyl causing a public health crisis in Alberta? 
So Dr. Goodison explained the potency of fentanyl and the likelihood of overdose from it, as well as the current health response to increased addictions and deaths related to this drug. If you have a question or two, please come up to the microphone over here, state your name, and keep your comments brief. And as always, um, have your, your points of view respectful to, to everyone else. Uh, Dr. Goodison, I'll invite you back to the podium for questions. Uh, Maria Fitzpatrick, and first of all, thank you for coming and doing a fantastic presentation. Uh, in a previous uh, life, I, was, uh, I worked for Corrections Canada for thir over 30 years and uh, spent about 20 years working with offenders and parolees. And I had a very high number of uh, parolees who uh, had had a medical issue, uh, were given um, uh, drugs that uh, they became addicted to. Uh, what kind of processes could be in place in terms of uh, somebody who needs to be on those drugs because of an accident or whatever uh, to gradually withdraw them from those kinds of medications? Okay, thank you for the question. So there are um, physician guidelines around opioid prescribing, and um, our one of our goals would be, um, and we haven't spoken about this provincially yet, but the evidence would support educating physicians about screening appropriately for um, any kind of risks around um, higher risk of addiction. Um, keeping people's opioid doses for short terms for those people who have self-limiting orders uh, disorders and measuring outcomes by function not by dose of medication so I think there are a lot of approaches and one of the big things is to educate our physicians and work with our college to improve physician prescribing practices Thank you, very <clears throat> Thank you very much for your presentation. My name is Frances Schultz, and you gave us a lot of information here that for many of us, I think, is, is quite new. Mm -hmm. But my question is about what to do when you see someone suffering, that you think is suffering an overdose, but it might be a different health issue, and you give them the, the uh, nadoxalone kit, are there side effects from giving it to someone who hasn't taken any fentanyl? Right, so you've raised, raised some excellent points. Um, overdose can look like a lot of things, so someone who is a diabetic who's hypoglycemic can present looking very similarly. Um, so when someone is given a kit, they are determined to have risk factors, so they have to have been someone who's using opioids where the kit isn't intended to be given to people who use opioids. So the time to give it is when you know the person is at risk and they present with those symptoms. The very good thing about naloxone, and one of the reasons that it's not going to be a Schedule One medication or needing a prescription anymore, is that it's very, very safe. So for someone who doesn't have any opioids in their body, it will do absolutely nothing. So you're just giving them a needle that um, will cause virtually no harm. So yeah, it's very safe. 
My name is Deborah Hollingsworth, and I just want to thank you for your time coming here. Um, you had mentioned there were brain changes, and I just wondered if you could be a bit more specific about the critical areas of the brain that are affected and what the recovery time for the brain is once they, if they, and once they detox. Thanks. Okay, so that question is ideally an addictions expert. I can give you my simplistic um, medical officer of health summary of that, which really is that as we add more opioids into the brain, the receptors, we get more receptors. And so we need more opioids to fill those receptors to feel good. Over time, that persists and it people tend to get on an escalating dose of opioid medications. Um, those changes in the brain are f physical changes in the number of receptors, and that can take a long time to reverse, and in some people don't ever reverse. So some people maybe, as a diabetic, may need insulin for life. Some people may need to have opioid replacement medications for life. So it's uh, other people, though, particularly those who haven't been on opioids for as long, may be able to get off the medications that treat it. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Goodison, I'm Trevor Page. I was interested particularly in the chart that you showed. I don't know whether you can get it back, but the one which gave the breakdown and increase in number of cases between Edmonton, Calgary, and I think the third categorization you had was rural. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> that's the one. And I wonder to what extent rural represents cases on Aboriginal reserves. And if you could give us the breakdown on that. And whether the divide of responsibilities between the federal government and the provincial government has an impact on treating those cases. Right. That's an excellent question. Now, the medical examiner has not divided the 2015 data by on-reserve and off-reserve. However, we do know that a number of these overdoses do occur on-reserve, and in fact... Um, the Blood Tribe here in South Zone did state, uh, have a state of emergency related to fentanyl use on reserve. So it is a problem. Your question about the jurisdictions um, is also a very good one. So what's happened is a lot of collaborative work has to occur in all of these scenarios. And one of the people we work with, we work with First Nations Inuit Health, we work with Blood Tribe, um, we work with the Blood Tribe Department of Health, we work with Chief and Council, we work with police on reserve. So it's a really huge collaborative effort to get something like this. So in 2000, or when Blood Tribe declared a state of emergency, the federal government actually provided naloxone kits. Now Alberta Health Services is providing kits for that same group. So we're working together across jurisdictions uh, to to address the health of all Albertans, including First Nations people on reserve. Thank you. Good afternoon. My name is Dave Hetherington, and as a bit of a background, I'm a firefighter paramedic in the city, and I've responded to numerous of these mm -hmm. overdoses uh, in the city. It's actually very frequent occurrence. Um, I think our charts here don't illustrate it well enough. My concern is, is that sometimes we get these overdoses that happen within family units or within 
groups of people that know each other and i don't think the education is getting down there at the street level down to the actual people that that would use it can you re-highlight how we're doing that again because i'm not seeing any changes on the street uh, not over the past little year that's for sure okay well any ideas you have on that are appreciated because you're working with that population certainly our harm reduction agencies would be the ones who'd be most connected with the street population so what they do is they post and they spread by word often there's a um, by word works a lot in many populations who are either homeless or um, using street available drugs um, that message gets out it is a challenging population. We've had a lot of information in a variety of forms, from media to online to uh, posters. Um, and so, again, any suggestions you might have on how we could better improve that are always uh, appreciated. Yeah, I know that law enforcement is probably the wrong way to do it. Uh, these people don't want to deal with law enforcement. And lots of yeah. times they don't even want to call 911, only because yeah. there may be a... Uh, an arrest pending for other issues that they may have. Um, so I think it is good to have the Narcan kits in the, in the residences of, of the users. Uh, it would be nice if those Narcan kits were preloads as versus drawing up mm -hmm. from the amps, uh, and maybe that's a manufacturer issue as compared to uh, what this, the kit is, is designed right now. Certainly, though, I think it needs to be done at the street level. We go to the shelter routinely, multiple times on a shift, and other overdoses there are, are significantly high, um, not just with... with uh, with the opiate-based drugs, but but alcohol, which is probably the, the number one issue that we deal with. Yeah, so this the naloxone is only specific for opioids. It won't help with the alcohol overdoses. Um, the um, shelter is actually has two routes of access for obtaining kits for people that do attend the shelter. One is um, Arches, the harm reduction agency. The other is our sexual health nurses are also providing kits in South Zone, and they do visit the site. So we are attempting to get in there as much as possible. Um, but I think bringing an educational session to that site um, would also offer further value. Thank you. Work in progress. Yeah. Thanks for the suggestions. Bev Mundell Atherstone, thank you very much for your talk. <clears throat> Certainly a timely topic, and it's absolutely staggering to see the exponential increase in, in deaths uh, from fentanyl. My question segues nicely from the last question. Um, I had heard that there was a possibility that people who phone in to 911, perhaps if there's a group having a pill party and someone phones in to say that someone there is in distress, that um, legislation might be at hand to um, protect the person who's phoning in or the people at the party so that they would not be charged. Um, what, what's happening with that? Do you have any idea? So your best answer is going to come from policing because uh, it's in their domain as to how they handle that. What our role is is to go and educate police about what the kits are, what our goals are, which is really life-saving. And um, the police, I can, we have talked directly with police in Lethbridge who are, as much as they can, taking... Uh, uh, well, for, for first things, for Lethbridge specifically, is that police are very rarely the first to arrive on an overdose scene uh, because um, fire or ambulance would arrive first here. When police do arrive, we do work with them to um, have them help us take a harm reduction approach. Uh, and so that, you know, uh, we want drug users to feel safe to call 911 to save lives. 
We also, police also have to carry out their duties when they arrive on a scene. So I think it's going to be working very closely with law enforcement to have the best approach. And a supplemental question, if I may. Um, when they arrive at a scene and there's more than one person um, taking drugs, uh, is, that, is that opportunity taken to educate people at the scene about the toxicity of fentanyl? And again, that's a policing question, so I can't, um, I can't speak to that, but we are hoping by educating police that we, um, that we open the door for these kinds of discussions. My name is Terry Shellington. Thank you for coming, and thanks for graphs, for the information and for graphs that you can read at the back and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, uh, my question is around the demographics uh, of the problem, and I, I didn't hear you say a lot about that. Is this mostly a street problem? Uh, and what age of people uh, tend to uh, have o overdoses, and what mm -hmm. social strata? Mm -hmm. um, so we're, we're seeing an age group typically of 20 to 60-year-olds, uh, peaking in that 30s age group. Um, it crosses all demographics. Now, we haven't got our death data broken down because that comes through the medical examiner's office, which is outside of AHS. So we don't have all the demographic breakdown yet on that information, and we are working with the medical examiner's office to get further information. Calgary um, did work with uh, some specific data there and found that two-thirds of people in Calgary were actually, um, two-thirds of the overdoses occurred in households and were not thought to be street-related use. So that's a Calgary picture. Whether that means the same for our zone, um, I can't speak to that based on the information that I have access to. My name is Mary Shillington. Uh, thank you for coming and for your information. Uh, we had a discussion at the table, uh, so this is kind of a table a table question. Uh, as as the kits uh, become available without a prescription, the question and thought was from some people at our table, well, what's going to stop the dealer from uh, selling the the drug and then the kit so that uh, at the same time kind of thing so that uh, uh, you could take as much drug as you need as you think you need and but then the kit will save your life uh, thought that that was kind of a bizarre question but anyway that's that's our question <laughs> yeah so um, I guess if I was buying drugs on the street uh, and had to pay for a kit from a dealer I'd rather get it free from another site but um, so, so I think uh, one of the underlying things about the question is, is this a safety net to enable users to take more drug because, hey, there's a kit here and they can just save themselves. The research actually shows that's not the case. Um, when kits become distributed, what that does is users approach um, a site, a harm reduction agency, Alberta Health Services site, and they get connected with people who can help them. And that connection fosters them actually be more likely to go for treatment. So in fact, what happens when kits are distributed is use goes down. Mm. So there's um, a lot of people had that question, and the literature has looked at it and shown that usage goes down when as kit distribution increases. Thank you. Uh, since there's nobody else behind me, I w wanted to ask a question then around 
the homeless people, having seen recently uh, Where, is, uh, Where is Home, Dan Berdusco's uh, documentary, and him, uh, the people that he, some of the people he interviewed talking about how many of the homeless people are FASD, uh, and so then the, the, the cognitive ability of many of those people is, they said between eight and 12 kind of thing, years of age. Uh, how are they, I suspect if they had money, they would be uh, very susceptible to fentanyl too. Uh, now is, is that suspicion accurate or not? And, and how are they supported in, in the risk, you know, and, and the, with the kits and so on? So I think your question really speaks to the fact that this has to be um, a broad approach that includes addressing mental health challenges. And some of that can include any kind of cognitive disorder that enable, that limits people's capacity to make good decisions. We see this with a variety of things, um, alcohol use, drug use, um, as sexually transmitted infections, early pregnancy. There's a lot of um, factors there. So I think that is um, part of a broader question that we are working uh, on and have been working on to address from both a public health and a mental health and addictions um, approach. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Um, thanks for coming, Ken. It was very informative for me. Uh, is there any particular programs in schools uh, to teach kids about these uh, the dangers? Is there is a actively is it actively being? Uh, I mean, I suppose there's a so, there's so a danger of informing people about this uh, as opposed to warning them about it. Absolutely. So your your question is very well phrased because um, so we we want to be cautious about the information we give out so th the approaches in schools we've actually got um, addictions and mental health staff who go to schools we have um, health promotion staff who go to schools we have our public health staff and they're all connected into the schools so we've been working with them to ensure they're aware of what is available to help students who may be addicted But we also are looking, really pushing towards that prevention aspect, so that primary prevention in the school setting. Um, and I think that's really the way to go because you do have to be cautious about a message in a brain that's at the age where they want to try all new things and they really want to experiment. We have to be very careful how we put a message across about something like fentanyl. So actually, when all these posters are created, one of the decisions that goes into that is, rather than saying this is a stronger medication, which might be appealing to a lot of kids, we say this is more toxic, this is more dangerous. So we have to be careful with the terminology. And yes, there is evidence to suggest that, you know, taking a gradual approach and presenting information as the student is ready to hear it is the way to go. So that information is there in the background. They'll get a general high level information on all the drugs out there. But if they identify an at-risk student or a student that they're suspicious about, we can delve into that further and offer them resources as indicated. Uh, Trevor Page again. Um, I do remember from your talk, you were saying that the illegal fentanyl was quite easy 
to make. Mm -hmm. But perhaps you could elaborate on that. I didn't understand what the ingredients were and how accessible they are. Hmm, I don't know if I and should since, that. <laughs> and since, as far as I can tell, we're all older kids here, you can feel quite safe to tell us. So I don't know how to make it myself, but um, the information I have is that vast quantities of fentanyl powder get shipped into the country, and this gets mixed with other components that people have around, like one of the pictures even has a Drano container in it. You don't know what you're getting. And pill press, anyone can get a pill press, press the pills, stamp them, and you can sell it. The cost benefit is huge. So people can sell these street. I don't know how much a pill goes for on the street, but your markup is um, thousands of percent. Like it's a massive markup. So I think that's the draw for the drug dealers to be providing this. And I mean, there's really a whole history to this because um, one of the things that may have precipitated this is oxycodone, the medication, was commonly one that became available on the street for people to take. And it was the prescription form of it, and so it was made in a pharmacy, a known dose of, it, of, of um, oxycodone was in that pill. When the company wanted to make the drug safer, they moved to, because um, people will take these pills, they'll crush them up, and they'll inject them. The company was concerned that this was causing overdoses, and so they wanted to make it safer. So they moved to a pill called OxyNeo, and this was formulated so that you couldn't dissolve it in water. When that happened, there, a demand for the old oxys was created on the street, and that demand may have been filled by people making these pills. So I cannot provide you a recipe for that today, but it is apparently quite easy to do. Um, people with an interest could probably go online and find out um, how to do it, unfortunately. Thank you. Okay. It's a, it seems like today we all get second chances. <laughs> so, <laughs> Francis Schultz again. One of the things that you mentioned was the that two-thirds of these overdoses are not happening. They're happening in homes. Mm -hmm. and, and, and is there any information about, for example, are these teenage uh, pill parties or what kind of thing? You, when you've got grandchildren in, uh, in high school, mm -hmm. you worry. Yeah. about what they might be exposed to. Yeah, and so, so one of the um, challenges is determining exactly who's dying from an overdose. We can look at our data as to who's prevent presenting to emergency. There are a few people under the age of 18. It's not that high. Um, the, the peak is really in those mid-30s of people who are presenting to emergency. This is, however, something that does happen to high school and even younger aged kids. So our, our focus again is really about that awareness and education and protection and, and in kids who are in a school who are known to be users is helping them to get access, helping 
encourage them to let their family know so they can be supported if that environment's appropriate for that. So yeah, it, it's a concern for all ages. Um, like I say, we don't have that demographic breakdown on the deaths, but we can look at sort of the what's happening in the emergency departments and it does impact that population. We're doing our, um, the, the question that was posed earlier sort of answers the components that we're doing addressed at um, that youth-aged population. And, and we're hoping that we make it more available for um, that population as well by having it available through our sexual health nursing program because it's, um, the schools are already connected in with that program for us. So I think that will open the doors. Hi, my name is Kathy Cochran. My question is, you made reference to Canadian physicians. Yes. Um, prescribing opiates more than anywhere else um, in the world. Mm -hmm. um, do we know uh, why that might be? Is it um, something in the Canadian climate? Is it the relationship with um, <laughs> drug companies and physicians or none of those? Uh, do we know anything about that? Thank you. Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, and I think one that deserves uh, further further look at it. Certainly having been educated in the Canadian system, it was very interesting for me to go through in the 90s, and right then was the time where um, the generation before me was opioid medications are only for cancer because they're terribly addictive and everybody was scared to use them for anything else, was to opening that up to a broader population. And I think now we've gone the other direction where we're giving them out too freely and we need to close that back down again. So how Canadian physicians, I mean, we're, we're seeing a similar situation in the, in the United States. They're not far behind as far as the number of scripts as well. I can't speak to exactly why that's uh, more prominent in Canada, but it does speak to the fact that we really uh, need to address that issue. And I do know that it's on the government's agenda for um, for next steps. My name is Beth Moore. Thank you very much for your very informative talk. It's just maybe a frivolous question, but I was just wondering what's the significance of 80 on these pills? 80, because the oxycodone tablets that they were mimicking were 80 milligram dose oh, tablets. Okay. Yeah, so the oxy 80 is, yeah, oxycodone 80 milligrams. And another follow-up just to just the previous uh, question of um, the other lady is, um, is there a difference like in the provinces as to what, how, how many opioids are prescribed or, or when they're prescribed? Yeah, it's not just Alberta that's having this problem. It is a cross-Canada problem. Um, BC has actually uh, numbers very similar to total overdose deaths relating to fentanyl as Alberta does. Um, I was just at a presentation by one of the key um, harm reduction physicians uh, recently there, and they're, they're also seeing uh, a similar type of problem. And certainly uh, where the pills are found has been Alberta, BC, um, across all provinces, all the way to Newfoundland. So uh, it's not an Alberta-specific problem, um, uh, but we're... You know, and we're responding very similarly to other provinces, and I think the provinces are also learning from each other's approaches um, how we can be provide the best response. Um, actually, what I it's Maria Fitzpatrick again. Okay, uh, and this is more of a comment than a question. Great. Um, 
much of what we know about fentanyl, uh, we learn about it uh, through our medical uh, services. We have really good medical services in Canada. I have relatives in different parts of the states. Fentanyl is an issue in other places, but they don't have the kind of statistics we do because they don't have the health care that we do. So my comment is, it may not be that Canada is that much higher than anybody else. We have good stats because we have a good medical system. That's actually an interesting point because many states in the U.S. have excellent data. Other states have none. And the states that do have a lot of data, it, it shows a very similar scenario. Yeah, that's a very good point. Great. Well, that concludes our question period and our session today. I'd like to thank you again, Dr. Goodison, for coming and informing us about um, fentanyl use and, and what's happening in, in our south zone. And thank you again for everyone coming. And hap have a happy Easter, and we'll see you uh, next week. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thank